We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Lerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Today, the kids are back in school and there is no disruption to education. Oh my, what year are we in? Here's Scott Thompson. Pinch me. Are we in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s? I don't know. Don't want to jinx it. Don't want to to ruffle any feathers. Don't want to be negative. Want to keep moving forward on it all. Just breathe deeply. There we go. We'll get through this. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, we're continuing on. Um, full steam ahead. Uh, steady as she goes. Pick your phrase. Uh, but they are chatting, and by they, I mean the union for uh, the QP union for the education support workers and the uh, provincial government also talking, which is uh, good news. Good news hell, uh, had by all. We'll talk about that in a sec. But the go bus workers are now going on strike. Go, uh, yeah. So um, they want to deal again. Going back to uh, the bill that held uh, inflation. Cost of living raises at inflation at 1%, but this was before the pandemic when it was at 1%, of course now uh, hovering below 7%. So be fascinating how that shakes down. Also, with the ongoing uh, negotiation and the education support workers on deck of the teachers, and uh, there's a whole long list of, of people that are coming due. And many are asking why they don't just repeal, uh, repeal Bill 124, because those a lot of those contracts are just coming due anyway. So they're up for renewal, uh, which is uh, obviously... Obviously, and now with the education support workers, they're going to be setting the template uh, for these other uh, unions going forward, whether it's transit workers such as GoBus or whether it is, um, you know, teachers or or whoever's left in the education chain as well. All right. So uh, it it appears that uh, Doug Ford has offered uh, more to the lower end of the workforce, bringing them up. Uh, as per QP concerns, again, don't know any of the details of these uh, deals, as we shouldn't, because they're off all in negotiation and uh, behind closed doors trying to hammer all of this out. Um, the thing that I was thinking about in all of this, though, is haven't they already played their best hand? Like the union has already said they will strike and did, and the government has already legislated them back to work, although backed off of that. So I'm not sure what's left to show here. I think, you know, we've all seen each other with our pants down and probably not impressed with that. So uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this all pans out. But anyway, the uh, the uh, education minister and the premier holding a news conference earlier on this morning to talk about all of this and in order to make it uh, clear uh, what was happening to everyone and uh, that they are continuing to work on a fair deal. Here's what the uh, premier had to say earlier this morning. We want a deal that's fair for students, fair for parents, fair for taxpayers, and fair for workers, particularly lower income workers. We know we can get there. We know we will get there. And in regard to the new offer that has been addressed as of this morning. I've heard QP say we need to invest more in lower income workers. I couldn't agree more. 
So today, we're back at the table. And while I can't get into details, we're back at the table with an improved offer, particularly for the lower income workers. And in regard to those numbers, obviously, uh, they can't talk about that in public. Here's what the premier had to say. I really wish I could, I could tell you, uh, you know, mediator, have my neck if I did. I, I just can't. Uh, but we did offer a higher amount. I thought we had a deal. I was convinced we had a deal. And all of a sudden, they came back to my office and said, there's, there's no deal. I was, I was floored. But uh, anyways, we'll go back to the table. We're going to give it everything we can. And uh, hopefully we're going to get a deal, keep the kids in class. And about how nobody wants this to drag on. Nobody wants the fight. I don't want to fight. I just want the kids in school. You know, I'm, I'm past the stage of, of fighting and, and it's not worth it. People don't want it. Parents don't want it. Students don't want it for sure. And I'll tell you, the other people that were affected were the employers. When... When you have a million kids, you know, staying at home and they don't want it. I, I talked to a grandfather and I think I said that yesterday and he said, Doug, I love my grandchildren, but I just had four of them dumped off at, at my home. <laughs> I'm babysitting all day. So, uh, do whatever you can. So I just want to thank everyone. Let's, let's work together and move forward. That's, that's all I'm asking. Um, <laughs> it's, if we can just keep that tone, that would be really good. Uh, if we could just keep the rhetoric and the costumes and the, you know, head nodding and, and, you know, what we see on news conferences. If we can keep all of that to a manageable level and negotiation just in the tone that we just heard, uh, maybe we'll get somewhere. But, you know, the grandstanding and the circus, uh, I think the parents have pretty much had enough of that. Uh, over the last several decades, let alone coming out of a global pandemic. And it looks like both sides have got that message loud and clear. It's going to be interesting to see how this all pans out. Uh, and again, uh, remembering that January 15th, 2020, just before the kids were literally out of school, we were dealing with a one-day teacher strike. So again, we have just continued on where we left off. Uh, with education workers, with the education support workers. So again, something's got to be done. You got to change the attitude. You got to change the way we do this because it's the only, only business industry where it controls as much of the population the way this does on a seemingly annual or semi-annual basis. So here's hoping that uh, they can get something hammered out out of all of this and ask, acts as a template for the other future negotiations as well so we don't have to go through this with teachers or, or, or even those that go. So here's hoping. Now, we always knew that Hamilton's a pretty creative town, whether it's music, arts, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> but this, this is, uh, this is pretty interesting. This is pretty cool. Um, uh, one week from today, coming up at the Westdale Theater, you can be treated to a piece of, uh, homegrown, um, cinematic magic. We'll leave it at that. Uh, five bucks at the door, a donation of a non-perishable food item to the Good Shepherd Food Bank. What is it? It is down t- uh, Downton Alley, a seven-episode spoof on the popular Downton Abbey starring taxidermist rats dressed in Victorian clothing. Is there any better way to describe it? Nope. That's why you got to bring in Bill Boyd Wilson, a.k.a. Cadillac Bill, singer and songwriter for Cadillac Bill and the Creeping Bent, host of the Cadillac Bill Show and creator of Dunson Alley, and is with us now. Uh, Bill, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, hi, Tom. Tom, thanks a lot for having me on. I mean, not Tom, Scott. Scott. Tom. Yes. 
Thank you, sir. There you go. So uh, talk to us about this. Well, first of all, describe to someone who's never seen it what it is, and then we'll talk about how you came up with it. So what is this? Well, basically, it's a, first of all, it's a one-hour film of these rats, stuffed taxidermied rats, all in beautiful Victorian clothes, in sets. I built the sets, and kicks a risk, the local a taxidermist made the rats, the costumes, and I spoofed the entire season one of Downton Abbey, but it's all about rats. And uh, it's uh, heartwarming, it's a tearjerker, it's, it's funny. Uh, people will find it as thrilling and as exciting as the, the actual Downton Abbey, if not more. So, <laughs> so is it... Is it the actual script, or is it the actual script with some uh, a little creative license? Well, it's uh, I. <laughs> I had never even watched any of the Downton Abbeys. Everyone was talking about it, and I, and I figured <laughs> uh, I would spoof it. And I got uh, and Kix's rats, and she made a bunch of rats for it. So I downloaded <laughs> the entire season one script of Downton Abbey, and I just shortened it and rewrote it to be about rats. Um, and then several years later, a couple of years later, I actually watched a couple of the real episodes that I'd, I'd spoofed. And uh, when I watched the real episodes, I realized that mine were much better because <laughs> the actors would, would put so much more emotion into all of these dialogues and it was much more entertaining and more, more interesting because the actors in Downton Abbey are all a little stiff, but my rats are not. <laughs> so you're actually getting more expression out of the rats than you are of yes. the actual cast, is what you're saying. Yes, and several Hamilton well-known musicians uh, did the voices for them. Ginger St. James, Sammy Squid, Laurie Ace, uh Tim Gibbons. So I had a some great actors, myself, I did one of the war characters. So a bunch of great, you know, acting is in there. So this film you'll see is a one-hour film, but then there'll be a little intermission, and then we'll see the making of the Downton Abbey, where you actually see all of the actors doing their lines and their outtakes, which are hilarious. Uh, I did watch a little bit of that online. It, it, it is pretty funny. Um, how long did it take you to complete this project? Uh, well, I, I, probably about three weeks. That was about it. Uh, I uh, did the uh, all the actors did their lines first, then I filmed it all in about a couple of days, and then I did some of the outdoor scenes where the Downton Abbey home is located in an alleyway behind Stinson Avenue, which is basically yeah. a large cardboard box for toilet paper. So they all live in a grand toilet paper cardboard box. So, But then when you zoom into the door, you actually are inside the sets, which are magnificent, beautiful Victorian sets as I built so talk a little bit about that, because, you know, uh, over and above the acting and not that everybody didn't do a fabulous job. There's a lot of work when it comes to the cinematography, I'm guessing, and uh, the scenery and even the costumes and such uh, for the rodents. I mean, I talk. Well, first of all, where do you get it? How do you get a taxidermist rat? 
Because I'm not thinking that's some... (laughs) That's not very common. You're correct. It is very hard to find taxidermied rats. Um, On my TV show, uh, a friend told me, you got to interview this woman called and kicks a wrist. She taxidermies rats, basically. That's what she does. So I interviewed her. And she was on my show, and I was surrounded by all these amazing rats she'd done, all posed and in great costumes. I kept thinking to myself, I've got to do, make this into some movie somehow. So about a year <laughs> later, I, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do a spoof of Downton uh, Abbey, and I called Ann Kixer, and she was totally into it, and she provided the rats and helped to make some new rats for the characters. So basically, when you see this, you'll see that these characters are similar to the actual characters in Downton Abbey. But they're rats. So, and, 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 you know, creatively, this works beautifully, Bill. But how did you get from, because obviously you had a fascination when you were shown these rats, uh, all of them. Uh, how, do you, how did you draw from the rats and get to Downton Abbey or Alley? Like, how did you think, you know what, I, I'm going to do a spoof of this show I've never seen, but everyone's talking about, and I'm going to use these rats. How do you well, come to that point? I basically, I got a, a Barbie dollhouse. It's a three-story dollhouse. I decorated each room so that's not Barbie pink or nothing. I, I wore lovely wallpaper, uh, Victorian-style wallpaper with nice old furniture. A lot of it provided by Ann Kixer, actually, like small-scale furniture and pictures on the walls, pictures of rats. And I just set the rats up. <laughs> and I, I had the script in front of me while I was filming. So, so I knew, okay, we've got a wide shot. We've got three characters in this shot. And, and then i got to do some close-ups of of, of Robert Crawley, let's say, or or or, or, uh, or Mrs. Ratmore, the cook, or whatever. So I got a bunch of close-ups. So then I just edited it with the dialogue that had already been done. Um, and the the only live animal in it is a guinea pig. So there is one live animal, and the guinea pig who's wearing a bowler hat is um, is uh, the butler. Um, <laughs> I can't remember his name. Uh, <laughs> oh name. man! <laughs> all right, so it's all uh, we got to run uh, almost out of time here, Bill. So uh, it's all coming to uh, a peak. Uh, Westdale Theater, Tuesday, November fifteenth. Westdale Theater, Tuesday, November fifteenth. Uh, it's Downton Alley, seven episode spoof of the obvious, and afterwards uh, a little drinky winky, and then uh, a watching the making of. Uh, it is a brilliant idea. I, I can see how there would be people for some reason attracted to this, but it's uh, it's a great idea. Cadillac Bill, Cadillac Scott, Bill in the Creeping Scott. Bed, host of the Cadillac Bill Show. Yep, and creative of Downton Alley. Go ahead, Bill. Could I quickly say that uh, it's thanks very much to uh, Mickey McGuire's Cheese Shop in Dundas for actually paying for the rental of the theater. Now, this way, it's free to get in. All you do is bring food for the food bank. So it's basically going to be an enormous food drive for the food banks. So show up with a couple of cans and you see it for free. And somehow, Bill, you weave in a cheese sponsor with your rat yeah. show. Uh, way to go, yeah. man. You're always on. Thanks, Cadillac, Bill. Good luck with all of this. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. um, We're hearing more and more of this as... Uh, uh, the federal government seems to be changing its position on the Chinese Communist Party and specifically uh, Canadian intelligence information that is raising red flags about China's attempts to influence uh, our 2019 Canadian federal election. Uh, this, while they are still going through severe issues with COVID-19, which is uh, keeping their uh, economy uh, certainly down. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta and with us now. Gordon, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thank you very much. So it seems, Gordon, for years we've been talking about and people have been trying to raise red flags or get the attention of the Prime Minister in regard to issues with China. And he seemed to have a very warm relationship with them, despite the two Michaels, uh, despite the the failing vaccine deal during COVID-19. We all know what the five eyes uh, the last one to, to sort of bail on the Huawei and 5G and such. Why is everything changing now? Why all of a sudden are we seeing um, the federal government take notice of this? Well, fair enough. I mean, I'm not privy to the cabinet meeting discussions or to the PMO's um, words of the prime minister. However, I think there's been an accumulation of issues, um, both privately, that is, outside, out of sight, but also in the media, um, your show, newspapers, media generally across Canada, the weight of that, I think, cumulatively is, is changing minds. I think also we've seen a cooling of the relationship between many of our allies, certainly the United States. I was in Washington last week, uh, called on State Department and others, and but also between Europe and, and China. So I think that there's a bit of a group movement towards a more more cautious, um, more, I hate to say net negative, but certainly a, a restrained view of China. Um, uh, and this is been, I think, probably also accelerated by the Russian war. Russian I, was just, war. I was just about to bring that up. Uh, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine and obviously the relationship between Russia and China, does that obviously play a role here? I think it does. I think we're on the same page here. Um, it... Uh, uh, when, when there's actual fighting breaking out, when you have Canadians sending a lot of money and a lot of kit on training Ukrainian soldiers um, to fight a, a regime which is autocratic, dominated by one person, by one man in this case, I think it um, tends to perhaps encourage re-evaluation of other societies, countries, which are run by or controlled by largely one person. Now, Russia and China are not the same. Uh, they're quite different in really important ways, but they do have some similarities. I think in these circumstances, uh, that doesn't play to China's advantage in terms of a good relationship with the West. Uh, we've talked about this before, and you know, many have thought that you know because of the types of governments that they have, that China and Russia w- would be in lockstep, but not necessarily. Uh, it, it is a very fascinating in- relationship in that regard. So, how does China play both sides of this fence? Well, I think they're attempting to. I think there's a good chunk of, of China, and I think uh, it's pretty clear that, that Xi Jinping, who had early exposure to the Soviet Union and to uh, Soviet policies, has some nostalgia perhaps for that era when there was a good relationship between China and Russia. They went through a very long period of estrangement. Um, but I think ultimately 
both sides, uh, these are interest-based decisions. So when China has shown considerable restraint in sending, not sending weapons to, to Ukraine, uh, that's a matter of it being in Chinese interest. China doesn't want to get caught up in sanctions, secondary sanctions, uh, needs the market in the West. Uh, Russia is a pretty small market, important oil supplier for China, but a very small market compared to the EU or the United States, for example. Uh, how concerned are you about uh, uh, Global News is an article from Sam Cooper, uh, Canadian intelligence warned Prime Minister Trudeau that China covertly funded 2019 election candidates. How concerned should we be uh, about this? We're, you know, we're hearing, we're hearing about uh, these uh, remote police stations that are being investigated by the RCMP that are here, uh, apparently to, to, to keep tabs on, on, on Chinese Canadians that are here and such. Um, what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, I think they're all war, all worrying. Uh, quite frankly, they're not new. Um, I've been working on mm. uh, in government on China since the 1980s, and these things have occurred. Um, the one that is the more serious of the two, and it's not to downgrade the importance of unofficial uh, covert offices, or maybe they're somewhat in the site, but not the site of government. That's a, that's a, that's a bad issue. But when your fundamental institutions um, come under pressure, that's another thing entirely, and a much more serious thing. I have a little bit of a quibble with um, intelligence officers who have great power um, leaking information to make points and to criticize the government. Um, I understand where they're coming from. They feel that nothing's being done, but it's a bit of a dangerous precedent if it becomes normalized, where you'll have different groups within an intelligence organization leak information uh, to further their agenda. Now, if their agenda is, I presume, to curb uh, illicit Chinese influence in this country, that's a good agenda. But it's really the government's responsibility to take that information itself and to act upon it, uh, in my opinion, not to have um, officers um, releasing information which they have sworn to keep secret. What should the better, uh, how should the federal government be reacting to this? Well, if they've got the goods, if they've got the proof, uh, then there has to be consequences and there can be things as simple as, I'm not, not for me to come up with a list, but things that could be on the list to expel individuals who have been involved. I'm thinking in that report which you cited, uh, someone in the Toronto Consulate General sending funds to um, politically active individuals. It would appear that their candidates are office. I don't have all the details. They're not in the, in the reporting. But those sort of people could be expelled. Um, one could, um, uh, we, problem is we don't have a strong relationship with China right now. There's a lot of tools we could normally use we can't now, like like not have high-level visits. We're not having high-level visits. I think you need to focus on the people who are actually doing this. Obviously, read the riot act of the Chinese. But from my experience, these issues tend to reoccur and reoccur. It's, I've said this before. It's a bit like, crabgrass, you pull it up and it grows back again. So let's not kid ourselves that a tough response right now will end the problem indefinitely. It'll come back, I guarantee you. It's been around for, for a couple generations. I've seen it and it's not going to disappear. But that you don't just sit back, you have to act. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta. Gordon, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. 
When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, uh, this morning, another news conference with the Premier and the Education Minister uh, and giving us a bit of an update on the state of negotiations after uh, Bill 28 was withdrawn or in the process of, and the two sides are getting back together. So that's great news, and to give us an update, uh, Colin DeMello is with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He is with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, so uh, at least we've got a little bit of peace in the Valley for the time being. Uh, give us a bit of an update on where we are. News conference this morning with the, uh, with the Education Minister and the Premier and talking about a new offer. Uh, not too much on that offer. Any reaction from the union yet on any of this? Yeah, so first of all, the, the Premier was really kind of striking a conciliatory tone. He seemed to be almost pacified because, you know, he definitely wants to turn down the temperature here uh, at Queen's Park with the, with the union. And so the Premier was saying again, you know, he will rescind Bill 28. He'll repeal it on uh, Monday, November 14th. And, and then he said that he was willing to offer, uh, you know, a new contract to the union, one that really targets the lowest income workers with higher wages in CUPE. Uh, traditionally, you know, CUPE has some of the lowest paid workers in the education sector in Ontario. The union, though, while they're saying that they're waiting to kind of really see the contract offer, first things first for them, they said, listen, you know, we held up they held up there under the bargain by you know, calling off the strike and returning to the classroom. Schools are reopened once again. But they said the premier hasn't really held up his end of the bargain They're, They want him to recall the Ontario legislature immediately and to repeal Bill uh, 28 as soon as he possibly can. MPPs are currently on a break week because of Remembrance Day at the end of this week. They typically are on a break week around this time because they have to do a lot of constituency work as well. Um, Hmm. But the premier is not recalling them back to the legislature to do this as soon as possible. He's actually waiting until next week uh, to to rescind this legislation. So the union is arguing, hey, Bill 28 is still the law of the land there's still a contract being imposed on us so we can talk about a new deal all we want, but there's nothing to sign because you can't sign a new contract when there's already a contract in place. And repealing Bill 28 is key to furthering the conversation. That's what the the union is arguing today. So that being said, um, things are progressing. We're not waiting for a week before this uh, negotiations are taking place and such. Are the negotiations ongoing at this point? Yeah, I mean, listen, all the backroom backbiting and the bickering over, you know, Bill 28, that is all aside. Uh, The the key here is that the mediator is back at the bargaining table. The two sides are back at the bargaining table. And it seems like for now, they've all taken a breath. They've all gone to their corners. They've thought about their actions and they've come back to the bargaining table almost with a renewed um, kind of spirit here to actually talk and get to um, a, a deal. The premier said he wants a deal or he would ideally like to have a deal by the end of the week. The union says, again, you know, they're waiting for Bill 28 to be repealed and they want to take a look at the substance of the deal. Uh, but it seems like the temperature has been taken down. And that is the most important thing, right? Because you're not going to accomplish anything with two people yelling and screaming at each other and threatening to, you know, escalate the whole thing. They've taken those tools off the table for now and they're waiting to see what happens next on that note colin um and and there's probably no answer to this question have both of these sides 
already played their big hand by a using a strike or b using legislation i mean haven't they already sort of played their trump card here no pun intended the the answer to that is unequivocally yes they have (laughs) both played you know the 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 ace the ace of spades here uh or their trump card they've both played it but the thing is is that even though they've you know, said, okay, they're going to put those cards back in the deck. They're still in the deck. They're still there and available for them to use. So QP, as an example, says it is still in a legal strike position when Bill 28 is repealed. It can still give the government five days notice that it'll either, um, you know, stage a strike or a work to rule. And the Ford government, if they're unsatisfied, could always retable legislation that would impose a contract and take away their right to strike. None of these things is out of the realm of possibilities. I mean, we didn't think any of these things were in in the realm of possibilities until (laughs) last week, uh, but everything happened. So, you know, the the premier is not necessarily saying, and he's been asked this multiple times, you know, will you uh, uh, never use the notwithstanding clause again? The premier hasn't said yes. He, he, he'll always kind of say it's a tool that we can use. And the union has specifically said that they can go on strike. So as of right now, it's back to square one. They're back at the bargaining table. And there's still these now subtle threats that the, the hammer could be brought down. So how does this affect other negotiations with other contracts, other unions, Colin? Because obviously the teachers are on deck. Uh, we're seeing issues at go now. So how does this affect uh, future uh, negotiations, especially within the education sector? Well, on, on a micro scale with every single union, I mean, they can still have good faith negotiations with the government because, you know, their negotiations are, are separate from QP, not necessarily impacted uh, by, by whatever happened. Uh, it, it depends on wh- how parents are feeling about QP's actions, and we'll see that maybe with more public opinion polling in the days to come. Um, you know, if, if parents can only tolerate one strike in a bargaining session, then maybe QP may have ruined it for the rest of the education unions. But on a macro scale, it's what are all the unions collectively, not just education, but all of the public and private sector unions willing to do? One of the unions yesterday said, they will shut this province down if they need to. So now they have a larger threat on the table. The government already blinked in the face of that threat once before. So if all of them are generally unsatisfied and they feel like the government is going to impose another contract or use the notwithstanding clause again, I think that's when on a macro scale, you'll start to see all of that impact. So the premier's actions, regardless of whether he takes back Bill 28, have kind of created a new monster in terms of all of these unions Mm. coming together. They now have a new playbook for how to get a government to back down. And I think they would use it in a heartbeat. Uh, One last question. And we only got a few seconds left. Um, Where were the teachers unions on the education workers strike? We saw them all on the stage the other day. Were they a part of that or are they staying out of it because they're in their own negotiations? No, no, they're definitely part of that. There's been a lot of solidarity in the education and the general labor world, um, and there will continue to be solidarity. They weren't going to cross the picket lines, and they won't cross the picket lines if they're not in a legal strike position. But behind the scenes, uh, there is full support coming from all of the other education unions because, as you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Yeah. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. As always, Colin, thanks for the time. Be well. 
Thank you for having me. All right. We certainly know where we are today after uh, an impromptu strike uh, over the weekend uh, with the education support workers and such. And uh, today, legislation, uh, announced legislation would be uh, removed and that negotiations are continuing. And a new offer has been uh, put on the table specifically for the lower, uh, the lower, uh, paid workers in the, uh, public, uh, the QP, uh, education support workers union. So, uh, that being said, things are moving on, but what happens next and, and how do you negotiate when a couple of strong hands have already, have already been played here? And, uh, and now back to negotiation. Let's bring in Allison Braley, uh, Rattay, Associate Professor, Department of Labor Studies, Brock university and with us now allison thank you for the time i hope you're well i'm i'm good thanks scott how are you i'm doing good thanks so much so uh we've had what happened we've seen what happened over thursday friday saturday sunday and then monday uh in a news conference this morning that uh, both sides are back to negotiating and such and that another offer has been put forward but the first question i want to ask allison how do you continue on with negotiations at this stage when it appears you know we've already had the union call a strike and the government uh, legislation it's seems as if they've played pretty strong hands right off the top, if not their trump card. So where do you go from here? Is this unusual to start sort of full speed, you know, at full speed uh, at the very beginning of all of this? Well, I mean, this is, I think, certainly an unusual situation. Um, I mean, in the words unprecedented, uh, you know, have been used and things of that nature. Uh, but I think we're also in, in a new terrain again. So uh, although the, uh, you know, the stepping back from the ledge that the Ford government did uh, in saying that, you know, it would revoke the legislation if the workers came back to the table, uh, does not actually put everyone in the same position they were let's say a week and a half ago, right? You can't just pretend all this didn't happen. It's, it's yeah. a new day, it's a new terrain, and there will be significant pressure um, on both parties to, to, uh, to come to the table and actually, you know, hammer out a deal. Uh, the, you know, the education workers could have chosen, for instance, uh, to stay out and say, you know, no, we're not going back. I think there are good reasons why they likely chose not to do that. Um, I think the, the fact that they uh, knew that they had very strong support, uh, not only, of course, uh, among a wide swath of the labor movement, but among civil society and in particular the parents themselves. And I don't think they wanted to risk uh, losing that support and whatever momentum sort of had come along with it by now seeming like they weren't willing to give at all. So now they're both back at the table. Uh, we're in a kind of new terrain again, and uh, there'll be significant pressure, I think, on both sides. Um, and we'll you know, wait and see how that goes. You talked about new terrain, uh, and this will obviously change. Uh, does it change the tone of the discussion? Does it dial it back a little bit? Because in the same, you know, at the end of the day, the demands will still be there, and you know, a deal will have to be struck. Does it? Does this just calm the terrain for for a short period? Well, I mean, it obviously opened up a space for um, you know both sides to, to come back and, and put us into right. this new terrain. I think a lot will depend upon what actually is in this new offer. 
um, and how palatable it is, obviously, to the education workers. I, I have no sense of, uh, you know, how much they might be still uh, expected to and or willing to give from their end. I mean, I have no specific insight to what's happening at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I mean, I think much obviously will depend uh, on on how good this new counter offer is. If I mean, if it's really nothing to write home about, uh, then that will be a problem, um, you know, for the government, unless they can successfully spin uh, that it's, you know, the union being unreasonable, or if the government really does offer nothing much better uh, than before, then obviously uh, QP always has the option to to try to uh, get back to where it was and galvanize the movement again and 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 move forward on a different kind of basis. But what I'm really um, sort of struck by is, you know, having watched the press conference this morning, I was not expecting a second press conference uh, in two days on this particular topic, but I was really struck by uh, how clear it seemed um, that the real targets or subjects, if you will, of this negotiation never really seemed to be the education workers but the teachers and the unions that are going to be negotiating, the teachers unions that are going to be negotiating with this government uh, moving forward in the next little while. And this is something that had come up previously. We even saw this at the Ontario Labour Relations Board hearings over the weekend when um, some of the teachers' uh, lawyers, the teachers' union's lawyers, were trying to make arguments about getting intervener status now, that's basically when you're not a party to the proceeding, but you are trying to argue you have a direct interest in the proceeding. And they never did get intervener status, and that's fine. But part of the argument that, you know, at least one of the lawyers for the teachers union was trying to make was that it was clear to them, and he was going to presumably, you know, lead evidence on this, that uh, the, the minister understood that the floor that they were going to give to the education workers was going to be the floor for every other negotiation. And then that's what they were concerned about. And this morning, uh, Doug Ford more or less came right out and said that. And so we see, uh, again, even though we're talking about education workers and, you know, this this rapprochement that's now supposed to be taking place and this new counter offer, but that he can't really talk about, what he was also doing in that was consistently positioning the education workers in distinction to the teachers the low income education workers that he now wants to take care of versus the teachers uh, and the fact that, you know, the, the hundred thousand, you know, the, the 100,000K number came out as well, right? Already trying to make it clear that the teachers are going to be a different situation altogether. So that came out loud and clear, and that was pretty interesting this morning as well. Uh, even I noticed with the GoBus uh, reps talking about going on strike that they were looking at, they actually mentioned what happened with the education support workers and giving them uh, extra motivation. That was all mentioned. So is it not obvious that you know we're coming into a time of, of negotiation, one, tam- one template will be used uh, to help the others? We see that in the auto industry all the time. Well, it's certainly not untrue, and I don't mean to suggest that it was sort of, you know, it's a bonkers idea to think that, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that comparisons aren't made and that you don't try to uh, achieve yeah. what, you know, uh, other recent negotiations ha- have achieved, especially if you're in a, in a comparable industry. Um, so it's not that that's completely untrue, um, but, you know, 
negotiations also depend upon the specifics of the people involved, uh, the particular history uh, of, of negotiation and how they have gone in the past, um, the particular concerns that you're raising, which might be different, you know, one, uh, you know, one group from another. So it certainly isn't obvious either that, you know, if you you put in in place a certain floor, that that necessarily has to be written in stone for everyone right. else. I mean, right. the teachers unions will know that they have a different kind of image issue uh, if it turns yeah. out Good point. that yeah. they mm -hmm. are going to be are going to be negotiating over things like wages. I have no idea, of course, what their what their concerns are going to be. But it's also important, I think, to note that wages always get a lot of play in negotiations in in, in the in the reporting of negotiations uh, often outsized to their actual importance right. to the parties. I'm not suggesting they're not important, but they are certainly not the only thing. And when you're dealing especially with public sector workers uh, who have a, a usually a vested interest themselves in the kinds of work conditions that then translate to better services for the public, um, it's really important uh, as a strategy, I think, to make yeah. sure that that becomes uh, known to, to, to the wider public that's really what you're after. So it becomes... A Allison, I've got to cut you off right there. We are plumb out yep. of time, but thank you so much. We'll chat again. Allison Braley, Retai, Associate Professor, Department of Labor Studies, Brock University, about where we are with education negotiations. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. One thing that's been really frustrating watching the education unrest in this uh, province yet again is that it's distracting away from what we promised we would do during this global pandemic when we saw that our very much beloved, admired, uh, boastful Canadian healthcare system was not as strong as we thought it was and uh, exposing many weak links and uh, of course the stress and, and the pressure that our healthcare workers are under. So uh, we promised we would fix this although it, it obviously is a is a tougher uh, haul than, than uh, any of us can imagine. Uh, the provincial healthcare ministers uh, across the country are now meeting in British Columbia and trying to come up with some sort of new template, some sort of new ideas that will fix what is ailing the system from east to west, north to south. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Thank you. So uh, they're meeting in B.C., the health ministers uh, from across the country. Are you confident we're moving forward with this? Are you confident that we're doing more other than just applying Band-Aids? Well, I, I heard four new things coming out of this meeting, but a whole bunch of stuff that we've heard before. So first, the stuff we've heard before, basically all the health ministers are in unanimous agreement that they need more money. So no surprise there. They're saying we need the feds to pay from, you know, increased funding from 22% of what the provinces spend up to 35%, but the four, 35% of total spending. But the four things that I saw that were new, which may offer some hope, it'll be interesting to hear the details, but Prime Minister Trudeau promised significantly more, that's quote, significantly more funding. Who knows what that means? It'll be fun to hear those details. He did emphasize a few times that we want to see results for the money that the Fed spend. It'd be interesting to hear what he means with that, too. Third thing 
is there was a mention of, quote, tailor-made funding agreements uh, based on sort of most urgent needs, uh, depending on the jurisdiction across the country. And then the final thing that jumped out at me was uh, Health Minister Duclos, um, Federal Health Minister Duclos, saying that, hey, we want to build a national health data system, and uh, we want the provinces to agree to feed all their data into this health uh, data system. Now, that would give a lot more control centrally again. I'm not sure I'm super excited about that. The Quebec government immediately jumped on and said, no way, we already published our data publicly. You can look at it yourself. But those four features, significantly more results-based, tailor-made, and national health data did jump out at me. The rest of it we heard in July already. Uh, we've often heard that, you know, when stuff like this happens, that everybody wants to make sure they cr- claim credit for whatever is done or what they have suggested and such. You were talking about the federal health, health minister talking about the, the data system uh, for across the country, and I'm sure that's something that could be a benefit, but I'm not sure that if you asked every province what their top five priorities were, whether a database would get much higher than four. Um, are you worried that, yeah, you'll get the money, but it has to be something that we can sell politically? Oh, totally. You know, it's really fun to villainize either side in this debate. So we could slam the feds for saying they are Mm -hmm. breaking their promise. They're not paying their money. They initially said 50-50. We could slam the provinces for saying, you know what, the provinces are acting like spoiled kids. They want money with no accountability. Give me my allowance, but don't tell me how to spend it. The big issue at the center of this is is money and control. On the one hand, provinces want more money. On the other hand, the feds want more control. And if you look at the so-called five criteria that the feds wanted uh, published in March of this year, they they give a list of things that they want the provinces to do. If you dig into the list, though, the list is like 10 or 12 things. Number one, staff... The provinces need to deal with staff shortages, delay in diagnosis, treatment, and surgeries. Well, that sounds like four or five things to me. So it's it's a case of the feds wanting to call the shots, but they're only paying a tip on the bill, right? It's like they yeah, get to order yeah. the menu at the restaurant and they're paying 20%. So um, many have said we spend a fortune on this per capita anyway or already. Is this about more money or coming up with a different template? Well, it seems like that's all we want to talk about is money. But to your point, absolutely, we need to change. So currently, we're spending $308 billion, according to the Canadian Institute of Health Information in Canada. So about a little north of $8,000 per person, uh, 13.7% of our GDP. We used to spend, you know, down around 8% in the late 90s. So money is definitely part of it. But even before we can make change, we have to decide who can we hold accountable for that change. So right now, voters don't know, do I blame the provinces or do I blame the feds? And when you're sitting in a waiting room packed and you're not getting care, the only person you can take your frustration out is the, the receptionist, the nurse, and the doc who are trying to help you. And that doesn't help anybody. So we need to get this straight. Uh, we heard some stories out of uh, British Columbia last week that their doctors in, in the province had come to some sort of agreement for a better billing scenario, uh, helping. Is it these sorts of steps that need to be taken, or is that unrelated? Yeah, that was exciting. $135,000 raise for GPs, right, to, up to $385,000, a 54%. I mean, governments do not fork out that kind of cash unless they're buying something that they really desperately want. And if you, we again, details are scant here right now, but from what it looks like, it looks like the government is buying 
doc, more control over doctors. So currently, most docs in, in BC are on a fee-for-service approach. Fee-for-service is aligns your interest as a patient and the doctor's interest to try to run his or her business, right? You have a problem, doc wants to, wants to help you with that problem. The trouble with that is there's no way to control the cost. So utilization goes through the roof. So fee-for-service is terrible uh, from a provincial point of view. And so the provinces have been trying to starve fee-for-service to death. Now, there are criticisms of fee-for-service that you get inappropriate care, and that's a fair argument too. But what they've done now with this offer of $135,000 raise, I mean, it's astronomical, um, is they're trying to get the docs on more of a capitated approach where you get a certain number of dollars per patient for the year. There are other little incentives, but essentially now the risk from more services is transferred onto the doc. And so the right. doc now doesn't want to see you any more than he or she has to. Makes sense. Uh, here's hoping we get some progress with all of this in a post-pandemic world. Dr. Sean Watley with his practicing physician, uh, physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, senior fellow with McDonald laurie Institute. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. And now, in order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? Very, very, very What is he going to do? What? Is he going to... Oh, I can't say that. Is he going... No, I don't entice that. Is he... Maybe he'll run. Maybe... I guess there's a big announcement coming up next week. I guess it also has something to do with what happens uh, in the midterms, which are underway. The U.S. midterm elections are underway south of the border. Uh, Let's bring in Brian J. Caram, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, the Washington diplomat, and host of Just Ask the Question podcast, author of Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. He is with us now. Brian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. How about you, brother? You all right? So far, so good. Are we just to assume that the Republicans will take the House and the Senate after this? Uh, I I remember the old uh, saying, never assume anything, because when you do, you make an ass out of you and me. (laughs) So I'm not going to assume. I will assume nothing at this point. Would you be surprised? uh, Would you be surprised if that didn't happen? No, I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't happen. I wouldn't be surprised if it did happen. I I think the uh, American electorate is on a nice edge and uh, teetering. And which way they teeter and which way they fall depends on who they heard last. And I I don't think that that any of the polls are anywhere close to knowing what really is going on. And I don't think we've been spinning, spinning our wheels trying to second guess the electorate. And I've watched people coming out of polls you know, after casting a vote, refusing to talk to uh, pollsters, and I've seen them on the phone. I've heard mm. them on the phone doing the same. So I don't know, man. I tell you what, it's it's about as uh, iffy a proposition. I can't remember uh, a, an election cycle like this in my lifetime. Now, because of that, does that mean it will take forever to get to a conclusion, a result? I think in some cases, yes, there are going to be individual races that will be determined uh, by the end of the night. There are some that will be determined by the morning, but the balance of power in the House and the Senate probably will not be known for several days. 
So what do you expect the next week to be like? Uh, and I'll leave it at that. What do you expect the next week to be like? <laughs> well, I don't know if there's enough bourbon on the planet. <laughs> How about that? It's going to be nerve-wracking. I think it's going to be a... Um, Look, where there's close races, you're going to hear the Republicans scream if they lost that it was a hoax and a fix. The fix was in. It's It'll be more the big lie. If they win, they'll crow um, and they'll scream about a, a red wave or whatever. And I, I think it's just we're going to have to wait and see how it falls out. Uh, the Donald uh, sort of uh, alluding that he's going to run, teasing everybody next week. There's going to be a call. Does this all hinge on what happens uh, today? In other words, if the Dems can pull it off and, and keep what they have, uh, not so much if there's uh, a Republican sweep uh, and they take both, then he's in. Can we assume that? Again, there's the word. Again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume anything. With Donald Trump, the grift is the thing. So I still don't believe he will be on the ballot in November of 2024. And I think this is all just a big grift. Even if he jumps in now, he'll jump out later. Very probably, you know, you know, all that <laughs> stuff that he talks about. Very probably going to do it, maybe. It's all a grift. Send him money. That's, you know, he, we're sitting here worried about the how this country is going to go. And today he's sending out emails asking people to buy Let's Go Brandon christmas wrapping paper so he, you know he's selling christmas wrapping paper ornaments glasses hats t-shirts you know wine glasses shirts pants underwear you know whatever he can sell with his name on it he's doing it and this is all more the same when it comes to donald trump it's all a con so uh obviously using for a fundraising uh, campaign whatever the whatever the cause is What's his chance of actually getting the Republican nomination? He's already slagging the Florida governor. Um, is is this a slam dunk in any way? Does he still have that kind of control? Yeah, he, he definitely has that kind of control. Have you seen the Republican Party? They're the, all the people that got picked last for kickball when they were kids. That's you know that's that's all that's left are those who are subservient to Donnie and and whatever his whatever you know suits him at the moment. So I I yeah he'll get it and. Um, DeSantis might end up being his BP candidate and, or, or he won't, or, you know, he won't declare or he'll declare and three months later he'll say he's got a health scare and I'll be the kingmaker though. And here's Ron DeSantis. You know, I, yeah. I could see him doing any and all of the above because it's Donald Trump. There's nothing below him. There's no grift that he won't commit. And that's just what he's all about. So, and the Republicans have all bought into it and have sold their soul to him. So, yeah, I, I could see any and everything happening under the sun. <laughs> Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and the Washington Diplomat. Brian, as always, thanks for the time. We'll chat again to find out what it's like at the other end. Have fun. Ah! <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, obviously, know what has happened over the last uh, few days, well, the end of last week through the weekend, and then uh, Monday with the education support workers um, uh, through all of this, a strike, and then legislation, and now that's all off the table, and both sides are back at the bargaining table. And that's a good sign because the kids are in school as uh, we hopefully try to uh, move forward and get some agreement here.
here that keeps the kids in school. However, where do you go from here when you've already started with a strike in legislation? Uh, have you not played your trump card? No pun intended. Let's bring in Peter Gray, political science professor, McMaster University, and is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks. So, uh, obviously, Peter, this, uh, the weekend quite hectic between, uh, the provincial government and, and QP and such. And, uh, today there's peace in the valley and the kids are, are back in class and, and back to normal. The negotiations are continuing. But have both sides already played a trump card here? They're one of their best hands by already having a strike and already having legislation and, and all of that pulled back and starting over again. Where do you go from here? Yeah, that's a good question. It's not a, a standard textbook uh, collective bargaining uh, <laughs> session in this instance. I mean, I think in this case, uh, you know, there's reasons why the provincial government, uh, you know, will be willing, presumably, to compromise a bit more than they, they were ahead of time. Uh, the union as well, I think, uh, you know, recognizing uh, the situation that they're in and the probable, you know, negative public reaction if they were to go out on strike, likewise, I think, have some interest in in kind of stepping back a bit from their original demand. So, you know, there's things that are pushing towards a resolution in this instance, uh, you know, and probably also willingness to uh, explore different opportunities if they disagree around things like uh, arbitration, uh, you know, or final offer arbitration, um, you know, that they wouldn't have considered otherwise. So I think given how strange it's been up to this date, there's reasons for them to settle. And to the extent that it's a sort of a smaller labor group uh, with lower wages, uh, the capacity to deal with the differences in their their salary demands, um, I think there's space there budgetarily where it's not going to have a huge uh, impact one way or the other, you know, uh, in terms of a, a final dollar amount. Is it maybe a positive thing that we've got all of this uh, frustration, anger, aggression out at the beginning, and now we can settle down and talk, or is this just hiding under the surface? Well, I mean, shenanigans have a cost, and, uh, mm. you know, I, I think there was a cost particularly, you know, to the, the government and, and their credibility, but also a cost for a lot of parents in this province who had uh, a week of freaking out, if you like, trying to figure yeah. out arrangements for their kids, how they could do their work, if their kids were at home, all those kinds of questions, uh, you know, were involved. And I think more broadly in terms of, uh, you know, our trust in terms of governments not being cavalier and the use of things like the notwithstanding clause, there was a cost there. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, uh, it maybe leads to uh, a negotiated agreement, but that agreement was possible without all the shenanigans. And uh, it's a shame we didn't get there that way. Uh, any idea, any prediction as to what's next, um, what happens over the next week or so? Well, I mean, we expect uh, the legislature to come back next week and to uh, repeal uh, the legislation that was so important that they sat all of last week uh, putting into place. Um, you know, but after that, I mean, presumably continued negotiations. And uh, I'm sure with the idea that there will be an agreement uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, you know, I guess part of the issue is what happens uh, next. I mean, there's a lot of different labor groups uh, in the public sector who are negotiating contracts. I mean, we're aware of what's happening at Metrolinx with the, the GO bus drivers at the moment. And so if the government was hoping to use this agreement as a way of creating a template, you know, that you accept, uh, you know, the 2.5%, and if you don't, you're going to have to accept it anyways, and it's a notwithstanding clause, that way of approaching these uh, negotiations, I think, has in many ways been closed down by the events of the next week, last week. So 
Going forward, I think uh, it'll be maybe slightly more complicated public sector negotiations from the point of view of the province, and that they may, may have to do more negotiating than they were originally planning. Uh, that was my next question. Obviously, how does this, and the Premier alluded to this, how does this affect future negotiations with others moving forward? Uh, will it be as easy with those uh, since this was the template, or is each one different? Can you compare, say, the discussion you know, around the education workers that we're having right now compared to, uh, say, a teacher's contract, or is that, is that apples and oranges? Well, in some ways, it's apples or oranges. I mean, in the case of, you know, the teachers, for instance, you've got much better paid uh, employees. And, you know, presumably that has some impact on the public sympathy for the union's position. Uh, I think, you know, in this instance, even if polls show that conservative supporters were generally pretty supportive of the Ford government's position, you know, at the edges, you, you begin to see uh, people questioning why a slight hammers being used in negotiations with people earning, you know, thirty-nine to fifty thousand dollars a year. So, uh, you know, I think there will be differences going forward. Um, but at the same time, you know, Ford has succeeded in really creating some unity within uh, the uh, the Ontario labor movement, which, as we saw in the last provincial election, was kind of a bit scattered all over the place. A number of unions supporting the Conservatives, many others kind of sitting it out. But around this, all the unions really came together, and so. In some ways, that you gives a bit more of a sense on the side of the unions that in confrontations with this government, they can call on on a broader consensus. So it kind of plays both ways. I think the unions may be feeling a bit emboldened coming out of this, but a number of the other unions negotiating probably are less likely to get uh, public sympathy than this particular group of QP workers. Peter Griff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. As always, Peter, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. The Emergencies Act, I don't know, about halfway through now, it's a six-week uh, or thereabouts uh, inquiry, and at the beginning, holy smokes, there was lots of stuff, um, whether it's uh, the uh, former police chief of the Ottawa Police Service uh, on the stand, or whether uh, we're hearing phone calls with the Ottawa mayor and the prime minister. It's been um, it's been interesting to watch, to say the least. However, now, kind of as we get into the, the depth of it all and the real details, uh, uh, not so much. So it's time for a, a bit of an update. Let's bring in Kyle Benning, network G- uh, digital broadcast journalist for Global News. Uh, make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. Kyle, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott, doing well. Hope you are too. So lots of chatter at the beginning of this. Uh, not so much now. We're getting really into the details and and in uh, the fine finer parts of of the information and such. What stands out for you this week uh, from what you're hearing at the inquiry? Well, Scott, this week has sort of been focused on some of the smaller protests that sparked across the country uh, as the convoy was going on. Uh, the first two days here on Monday and Tuesday this week has been a closer look at what's taken place at Windsor, particularly the week-long uh, stoppage occupation at the Ambassador Bridge. Obviously, billions of dollars of trade just halted because of that protest. And what we've really heard and truly heard is just how different some of the authorities took a look at this and i think it's because at this point ottawa had really been settled in for about a week 
uh, going on to two weeks. And the authorities at hand, whether it's police agencies, provincial government, federal government, didn't want to see the same thing happen in Windsor as what was already taking place in Ottawa. So just the speed that some of the resources became available and just the teamwork and coercion between uh, municipal governments, police services, and like I mentioned, those other uh, government bodies come together to make sure that this didn't last too long. So the, the occupation at ambassador only lasted about a week. And we, one of the key things that really stood out to me yesterday was Mayor Drew Dilkin said that the city uh, police chief asked for 100 uh, officers between the RCMP and OPP. They came back with 500. Hmm. Uh, we remember at the beginning of all of this in the testimony of uh, former police chief uh, slowly, it was about uh, not having a plan, not getting all of the correct uh, intelligence information, you know, some dysfunction within the upper levels of the uh, police service, the uh, police services board and, and the mayor's office and such. Is that narrative changing at all? Is that does what you're hearing now change any of that? Or is this just, again, the details of those outside protests? And it sounds like there was a bit more teamwork there than there was in Ottawa. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what it is, Scott. It's sort of knowing what had already happened in Ottawa with their sort of, like you mentioned, lack of a plan, not doing due diligence on some efforts of research, not truly understanding how large this was going to look like, and really a reaction to that. So we've heard also Toronto's uh, police chief, James Raymer, say, hey, if it wasn't for protesters doing what they did in Ottawa, we wouldn't have been ready here in Toronto, and it could have looked like that there. I think we're hearing pretty much the same thing in Windsor, and it's just... I, I think we've ultimately seen maybe police forces are going to have to take an alternate look when it comes to policing protests in this country, and we've already seen it take place in Ottawa with Rolling Thunder and Canada Day. It's amazing you say that, Kyle, because, again, uh, as this went on, obviously the other police services were learning from what had already happened in Ottawa and such and adjusting plans or creating plans as uh, a result of that. Here's hoping at the end of all of this, and I think this is what a lot of people uh, find surprising, that, you know, it's one thing to think they're coming in for the weekend and they're not going to stay, uh, but then they, you know, they they do stay. There is a lack of a plan B. But the fact in a place like Ottawa, where there's, you know, apparently protests pretty much every weekend, that there isn't a master plan already in place, forget about the Freedom Convoy, that if something big happens or if something uh, goes awry, that there's some other sort of template that uh, that could be put in place. Do you think that will come out of this, you know, considering what we've seen of how the other police services reacted after the Ottawa occupation? I think that's already started. Uh, like I mentioned there with the other examples of what's taken place in Ottawa and the other municipal police forces already adjusting to that. And next week is really interesting as well, because we're going to hear from some of the intelligence agencies and RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky and some other uh, superintendents within the RCMP. So I'm sure we'll hear about things that they did and incorporations that they had with other agencies to make sure that the way protests are sort of managed is going to change. Uh, And I think that's, that's right. The commissioner could very well easily make a recommendation about police forces maybe uh, working together a little bit better. Those lines of communication that we heard that were so fractured going into this and the high stress levels in Ottawa, how those will sort of change and, and maybe even something as simple as police jargon because between the OPP, the Ottawa Police Service and the RCMP, they have different terminology for basically somebody who does the same job. 
so um, as this starts to unfold, as you see more of this uh, happen, uh, will we eventually or when will we eventually see the prime minister? What is the order? What is the agenda after we we get through the the, uh, the testimony you're talking about? When will we see the prime minister? Uh, any idea how long he will be testifying? So based on the witness list that has been posted online on the Public Order Commission's website, uh, the Prime Minister is one of the final witnesses to speak. So uh, like I mentioned, this week is going to be solely focused on some of the protests on other parts of the country outside of Ottawa. So we'll hear a little bit about that and how those protests were sort of influenced by what took place in the capital. Then next week, we'll hear from RCMP and CSIS officials, which will be, I think, extremely interesting considering some of the things that have been spoken about, about people involved in this convoy, about the ties to some of the far right and right wing. So to hear some of those CSIS reports and some people within that agency talk about it at a higher level will be extremely interesting. But then it isn't until the final week when we hear the members of cabinet and the federal government, uh, the prime minister, Marco Mendicino, public safety minister, um, finance minister, the uh, minister for defense. So it's not really till the end where we get the really juicy stuff and get to hear a little bit more about the decisions that were made at the upper levels to truly invoke the act. Is there a set time limit for this, Kyle, or will everybody on that list get in, even if it runs, say, a couple of days or a week longer than it needs to? I'm under the impression everything will get in. The commissioner has been very staunch about saying we will sit late into the day if we have to, to get through all the witnesses that are set for the day. We will even sit on Saturdays to make sure Mm. everybody will get a chance to sit on the stand and offer their evidence in this commission. So I don't think there's a concern of anybody ducking out. The issue is, is whether the commission wants to ask more people to come in and need more witnesses to come in and and offer evidence because we've seen that already a few different times where there have been witnesses who have come in in the last minute. All right, Kyle Benning with us, Network Digital Broadcast Journalist with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Kyle, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too, Scott. All right. It is going to be fascinating as this continues to unfold, really getting into the depths of it now. And uh, as Kyle was saying, in regard to what had happened in Coots, Alberta, what had happened along the um, Ambassador Bridge and such, and how what was happening in the first uh, week or two of Ottawa helped shape uh, the plans that went uh, into place in those areas in order to open the federal borders, which, of course, uh, some were closed as a result of uh, what was happening on the federal precinct in Ottawa. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all pans out, especially as we get towards the end and uh, the heavy hitters get up on the stand. Uh, Kyle Benning with us from Global News. Watch tonight for more on all of this. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. He is with us now. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, I hope you're doing well. I am as well as can be expected. Scott, how are you? I'm, I'm doing very well. You're giggling. What are you laughing no, for? No, I'm just, uh, you know, it's, it's, these are interesting days always. So, you know. So, uh, you know, and I always wonder, you know, what we're going to talk about. And that lasts for about five or six 
six seconds because we always find something. But your thoughts on where we are today? Um, I had one listener saying uh, Doug Ford caved. I'm thinking there's a big picture here, including many more contracts uh, to negotiate over the course of uh, the next little while, uh, and specifically with teachers and such. Your thoughts of where we are now and the fact that both those both these parties kind of, and I think we talked about this before, they played their biggest hand uh, with the strike and the legislation already. So where do you go from here when you've already played your trump card? Last night on my show, we opened the phone lines, and the question that I asked people was this, because everyone's got a different opinion. I mean, if you are a liberal, small or big L, if you're on the left, you believe that Doug Ford caved. And if you lean to the right, if you're a small C conservative or capital C, you believe that Doug Ford gave it it was an act of good faith and that the unions had forced his, his hand into this. Regardless, if we're going to see... The QP workers get more pay, which clearly we're going to based on what we've heard today. And if you listen to something Stephen Lecce said a number of weeks ago, where he said, whatever we agree to with this union is the baseline for all the other unions that we have to negotiate with. I asked the question and I threw open the phone lines and said, I've heard a lot of people say these QP workers should make more money. They're low paid. Okay, I think a, we, a lot of us agree with the concept. We want people mm-hmm. to be paid fairly. Yep. Are you eager and happy and non-complaining if your taxes have to go up considerably or even a little bit to pay for this? Because it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to say, I want everybody to make lots and lots of money. And then you say, yeah, but you're going to be the one ultimately who's going to probably pay for this. Do you still hold to that? There are some people who say, yes, Scott, and that's fine. I, I, I applaud their willingness to put their money where their mouth is. I just don't know that everybody is going to be thrilled if suddenly their taxes go up at a time when things are really tough. And then when the government says, well, you told us you wanted us to give them a better deal and pay the teachers, where do you think the money was going to come from? But people, I don't know that everybody thinks one plus one equals that. Um, it's interesting because, and I had a prof talk about this today and, and sort of spoke negatively about what you just said, that this will be a template for others. And it's like, and they said, you know, like, said how can that be? be? Yeah, how can how can that be? They should be doing this. It's like, well, why wouldn't it be? It's like the auto workers. Whenever one company goes on strike, it's a it's a template for the rest of the manufacturers. So I don't know why anybody is surprised by that. Uh, well, I don't in, think that in it's, any way. I don't think it's necessarily that if the QP workers get three point two that everybody else says I'm going to get three point two. My yeah, point no. is, if you were to say, look, these are lower paid workers, we will give them yeah, five. More. But you then put yourself in a position where the the teachers and the other unions may not get five, but they're going to expect more than one or two. That's and again, as the prof suggested, this will be a different discussion with the teachers than it is with um, with the education support workers. There might have been a bit more patience with the education support workers considering what their salary was than there will be perhaps with the teachers' unions. And again, I used this question on uh, Hammerhead Trivia the other day, January 15th, 2020, 2020, which was literally weeks before the kids were sent home from school, the teachers were on strike in Hamilton. They it was were. a one-day strike. They were so, rotating strikes. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, are, have we forgotten all about that? Have we forgot where we were for the yes. last 40 years? Yes. So, I, I don't think we have. I think we have for this section of workers who uh, traditionally are overlooked during these times for the more uh, flamboyant discussions with the teachers and such. 
um, and popular discussions with the teachers and such. But I'm not sure, and and they were saying I'm not sure that this will the same sort of uh, uh, of compassion for will be there for the rest of them if they start asking for the same thing that the lower income. Well, they're not did. going to ask for the same. Teachers are not going to come in and ask for 11.7 percent. There's no, they're, they're not that they would be out of their minds completely if they did because they will have immediately lost as we talked yesterday the public relations battle you come in asking for 11.7% over 4 years as a teacher pe- people will completely tell you that so you what are about crazy what what about half that 6 which is what well, uh, these guys did so this is where it gets really interesting because uh, is it cost of living is cost of so we've all with the inflation that's happened are we is 6% a, a reasonable ask these days um, some people, or is it a reasonable ask for this year? But then by next year, if it starts to go down, uh, well, what happens then? I don't know. Is just inflation only go up? Infl- well, look, if you have to put more money, p- part of what is causing, part of what is driving inflation, and every expert, it's not me saying this, every expert will say this, is the more money governments put into the system, yeah, the more money. So if yes, inflation may be up, but if you suddenly for this year give tens or twenties of millions more dollars or more than that to each union, well, that's more money you put in. You're actually going to help or hurt controlling inflation. It's a, it's a, it's a cycle that I, I don't know the answer to, Scott. I am not an, uh, an, an economist. That's why we have economists on the shows so we can try and learn from these people. But it's, it, it's not going to be easy. And if, if teachers do come in asking for 5 or 6%, We'll see if the public is as supportive. Your, your point is well taken. We'll see if the public is as behind the teachers at that point as they have been of these education workers. I Teachers generally win these PR battles. I don't know if they would win that one. We'll have to see. We have to remember what the discussion was, though, before we heard of COVID-19, because this discussion was changing even back then. Does the pandemic change it? We'll have to wait and see. We will. All right. Scott Radley coming up after the uh, 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thanks, as always, Scott. Have a great show. You too, Scott. Or you have a good night. I guess you're done. Thanking you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Steve wrote in to say, I went to the owner of the company I work for. I asked for a raise in pay of 10% every year for the next 10 years with an eight-month year, 100 paid sick days. Her answer was, not exactly what I thought it would be. She said she had two words for me, and it sure wasn't happy motoring. 